Harvard University's early motto was Veritas Christo et Ecclesiae, which means truth for Christ and the church. In a directive to the students, it laid out the purpose of all education as this. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and his studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, and therefore to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. What happened at Harvard? Yale was established to train ministers of the gospel for Connecticut. What happened at Yale? Presbyterians founded the College of New Jersey, later Princeton University, in order to train ministers of the gospel. What happened at Princeton? Brown University, first ten presidents were ministers. What happened? Dartmouth, eight ministers as president. What happened? Where's the gospel in these places now? In the book of Revelation, Jesus writes letters to seven churches, seven churches, get a letter from Jesus. What happened? Where are those churches now? What about the great theologian Augustine, bishop over all the churches in northern Africa, which there were many and they were large? What happened? Where did they go? On this Reformation Sunday, certainly we look back at church history, and we're thankful for how the gospel was set free by Martin Luther, but we must also look forward. What's going to happen with the gospel? How long do you believe the church, as it exists presently, will last? How long will Redeemer Presbyterian last? What are we doing, you and I, to ensure that we will continue into the future? Jesus gives us the answer this morning in our passage. Because Jesus says so, you and I must be the salt of the earth. If you have your Bible with you, I'm going to ask you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew, the fifth chapter. When you found your place, I'm going to ask you to stand so we might hear read together once again the word of the living God. The Gospel of Matthew, the fifth chapter, beginning in the 13th verse, this is the word of the Lord. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for your word, for the reading of it, for the hearing of it. Father, you promise blessing when your word is read and heard. And so we ask for that blessing now. Spirit of God, bless us with your power. Bless us with your life. Bless us with insight 
into your word. Bless us, Lord, with transformation that comes when your truth and your spirit join together in our lives. Father, because of us, may the church go on and on and on. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be be seated. As we looked at this passage last week, we really talked just about one word, earth, word, these terms that Jesus uses synonymously here. And we answered three questions about the world. First question was, who is the world? And while it is true that the earth and the world is the dirt and the sod under our feet, and while it is true that because of the creation mandate that God has given us, we are to care for this earth, we are not to exploit it, it's also true that as Jesus uses the term world here, he's referring to people. World means people. Secondly, we asked, how do we live in this world? You and I have to live in the world. we got to live among the people of the world as people who are broken. We are flawed. We are like cracked pots. We sin more than we want, more than we ought. And so you and I, as we live in the world, we just admit that. We own it as a reality so that you and I can live authentically. And not hypocritically around others, knowing that the light of Christ and the gospel in us shines forth through all of those cracks. And for that, as people see the change that Jesus makes in us, he gets the glory. Our weakness equals Christ's strength. Thirdly, we asked, how should we view the world? And we saw that you and I, we've got to try to view the world as God views the world. And God views the world as in great need of being saved, of being rescued from danger, particularly eternal danger. This view, his view of the world, is the view that caused God to act in such a radical way. That he, God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, would take on flesh and come and live in this world. It's a beautifully radical step to take, but he did it because he views the world as being in need of salvation. So Jesus came to provide that salvation. He said, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And speaking about Zacchaeus, Jesus says, today, salvation, salvation has come to this house. And if Zacchaeus was like the other tax collectors in his day, he was a despicable little human being, detested. A man who got rich off the suffering of others, cheating them, threatening them, intimidating them for his own gain. He needed salvation, and Jesus thought he was worth saving. And so he said to Zacchaeus, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So if you or those you know do not believe that the world and its people need to be saved. If you believe 2018 that that's an antiquated notion. 
if you believe it's dehumanizing to suggest that people need to be saved, then you'll have to take that up with Jesus and not me. You'll have to argue your point with him, the one who so believed that we need to be saved, that he gave his life to provide that salvation. He was committed to saving us. Because Jesus knows that you and I, or anyone else, we are never more human than when he rescues us and brings us near to God. We are never more human than when Jesus rescues us and brings us near to God. The further you are away from God, the less human you are. The further you are away from God, the less human you are. Not the opposite. It's not true, whatever our culture may say, that the further separated you are from God, the more human you are. It's a lie. When salvation comes to you or to anyone else, as it came to Zacchaeus, you are never more human because the beauty of what God created is restored. You are once again in right relationship with God. You, as a person, are realigned to function in this world as God created you to function in the world that he created for us. You're realigned with his purpose. The scales have fallen off your eyes so that you can see that it is true. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. You are less human. If you take the him out of the equation, everything in your life is out of whack. Especially if you replace the him with you, for from you, through you, to you be all things, to you be the glory. That's how our culture likes to live, toward self. That's the place our culture likes to place the glory on self and the indomitable human spirit. Now you might take Him, out of two of those phrases, you might say that through you and your hard work, you accomplish a lot in your life, so to you are all things, and to you be the glory for what you've done. But the first one, you can't do it. From you, forget it. You only have what you have been given by birth, and so do I. Or the resources that we have found to make the start that we have made it. You started with nothing. You started with something. God did not. God started with nothing. Ex nihilo. God is the creator. That's who he is. You and I are not. And so we must have this orientation. The right orientation in our lives. From him, through him, to him. Are all things. And we only know that. When we experience the salvation. That comes through Jesus. This message is becoming more and more out of step with our culture. Even those who call themselves evangelical Christians, and I know we're embarrassed to call ourselves that now. But we look for a way to soften the directness of this message. We attempt to comfort people. We attempt to counsel people apart from this truth. And that, my friends... Is exactly the reason for the history that I read at the beginning of this sermon.
for those periods of time when the gospel and its requirements were no longer culturally appropriate. When the gospel and its requirements are dismissed as no longer necessary, or even worse, when they are considered a detriment to our society. Those are the times when the salt lost its saltiness and was trampled underfoot. Now that might be okay if you could say that the world is a better place because of it. But that's not true. It wasn't true then, it isn't true now. Take a look around. As fewer and fewer people are claiming to be born-again Christians, who can say that our culture is better from the lack of their presence? Who can say that there is more hope? NBC News ran this article in January. If you're a young person feeling lonely these days, you're in good company. Youth everywhere are experiencing record rates of depression and anxiety. Surrounded by a cultural climate of both isolation and overexposure. There is mass neurosis, brittle Instagram veneers, obsessive combing over the news feeds of friends who always seem wealthier, prettier, or happier than we are. The issue isn't personal narcissism and selfie culture, but rather a culture of mass consumption and material acquisition. Sounds a little like to you be all things. Our mediated lives are populated with images of what we aren't, what we aspire to be, and what is impossible to achieve. No wonder young minds are awash in emptiness and insatiable hunger for self-fulfillment. Across gender lines, this is reflected in heightened levels of suicidal thoughts, eating disorders, and depression. Federal data shows that across the U.S., about a third of teens and a quarter of younger adults experience some form of anxiety disorder. About three million teenagers have recently suffered a major episode of depression. Teen suicide rates have swelled since 2007, particularly among girls. If you find yourself tempted to lament selfie culture's ruinous effects on millennial minds, Consider the kind of society that the new millennium has presented to all generations. Lives of unfettered excess, bottomless deprivation. When children are driven to retreat into themselves to make sense of it all. When youth spiral into despair in the race for social approval. Maybe it's not the kids being unreasonable but society being irrational. Doesn't seem then that hope has increased as the number of those who are committed to the gospel have decreased. Doesn't seem to me to be true that excluding God from our culture or that more and more people are being far away from Him is making this world a better place. Jesus 
And the salvation he brings is the only hope for the world. Don't shy away from that truth and please don't be embarrassed by it. Let that truth give you hope. Everything we have here before us this morning is predicated on hope. We should give Martin Luther his due on this day, right? Reformation Sunday. He said that everything that is done in the world is done by hope. And so if we have hope, that change will come. If we have hope that we will make a difference in this place for Jesus' sake, if we have hope that we can do something about these statistics, then you and I will eagerly embrace the identity that Jesus gives us in this verse. He says, you are the salt of the earth. Notice it's not a command. Jesus doesn't say, be the salt of the earth. Instead, it is just a statement of fact. You are the salt of the earth. You as one who follows me, you as one who is devoted to the truth that I speak, you are the salt of the earth. So for us, it is an identity issue. Seeing ourselves for who Jesus says we are, having a firm identity frees us. We no longer have to strive to, to find one or to create one for ourselves. No, no. Jesus gives us our identity here. We are the salt of the earth. That's the baseline. And so you and I are required to make all the decisions we make in our lives based on that identity. Does the thing I'm about to do, does the decision I'm about to make, make me more salty or less salty? In order to answer that question, We have to figure out what Jesus means when he calls us salt. What does he mean? Salt was used in a variety of ways in Jesus' day. Some who have studied salt in the ancient world have found 11 different uses for salt. Now everybody relax. (laughs) I'm not going through all 11 of them. Please imagine 2 o'clock and salt use number 10. Just three of them. One common use of salt in Jesus' day, as in our day, was for seasoning. So it could be said that Jesus is here indicating that those who are filled with His Spirit, who are going to be filled with His Spirit, and the fruit of His Spirit, as we move out into the world, we are true seasoning. Because the world's seasoning, the world's spice, is empty. Because when the amusements stop and the movie ends and the band stops playing and the drinks stop flowing, what is left? Nothing. No more excitement till the next spicy event. It's fleeting. On the other hand, what the Spirit gives to us is not fleeting. The love, the joy, the peace... That mark our lives as believers, they don't go away. These are the gifts that truly season our lives and season the lives of the world as that love and joy and peace spill out from us. So too the patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. They bring seasoning to the world. But I don't think that the big takeaway from Jesus What he's saying to his disciples is that we are to spice up the world. 
A second use for salt was as a preservative. Just as it was in our day, but until the days of refrigeration, salt kills the bacteria that causes meat to rot. And so once again, because of the presence of believers in the world, you and me, and the presence of the Spirit in us, the moral decay that is inherent in this world may be delayed. But I don't think that Jesus calls us here to go into the world to preserve it. Preserve means to maintain something the way it is. And I mean, who of us would want to preserve the world the way it is now? And as bad as our world is, remember what Jesus said. Now's the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. The world was bad then too. Strongly influenced by Satan. It's not a place to preserve. In fact, God intends to make a new heaven and a new earth. So in that sense, we're not to hang on to or preserve that which is passing away. Titus chapter 2 verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, And to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. See, you and I, we're waiting for something different. We're waiting for something new. We're waiting for the coming of Christ. Are you excited about that? Are you? We don't want to preserve what is. The Lord calls us to something better than reacting to what is, trying to plug up the leaks in our culture to keep the dam from bursting and letting loose a flood of immorality and godliness. Godlessness. We've got a better calling. We have a more active calling, not to preserve what is, but to bring about something new, something different, A kingdom, the kingdom of God within this world that is full of hope and life. And so I think that the third way that salt is used comes closest to what Jesus wants you and me to be in the world. Salt was also used to purify. That's the sense that salt is often used in Scripture. We read in Exodus 30 that God instructed Moses to make an incense Blended as by a perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. And that incense was to be put before the testimony in the tent of meeting, where I shall meet with you. It shall be most holy for you. And so the salt purified the incense, made it holy, fit to be in the presence of God. Leviticus 2, you shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. So here salt is used to signify the the lasting covenant, but also salt makes those sacrifices that belong to the Lord acceptable to him. 
2 Kings, we read about the prophet Elisha. He's in Jericho. And the men of the city came to Elisha and they said, Behold, 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 uh, our city, it's pleasant as my Lord sees. But the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. So Elisha said, Bring me a new jar and put salt in it. And so they brought it to him, and he went out to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have purified these waters. There shall not be from there death or unfruitlessness any longer. So the waters have been purified to this day according to the word of Elisha, which he spoke. Salt purifies. We move to the New Testament. And Jesus says in Mark chapter 9, everyone will be salted with fire. Salted with fire. And so here salt is joined to fire. So we think of Malachi 3 that says that God is like a refiner's fire. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Salt purifies. So for whatever else Jesus could have meant when he called his followers salt, we know for sure, for sure, that salt is used in Scripture to purify and to represent that which purifies. And so all the disciples listening to Jesus on the mountain at this time, they know this truth from their Jewish background. And so the takeaway for the disciples would most likely have been this. We are to go into the world. We are to live pure and holy lives. But the Spirit of God empowers us to live and bless the world with the overflow of that pure and holy life. Jesus has already prepared his disciples to be this in the world. Notice that the Beatitudes precede this statement because before they go out into the world they would or should have hungered and thirsted after righteousness already they should have sought to be pure in heart undividedly and and single-mindedly devoted to Christ so that they're ready to go into the world and proclaim the gospel and live lives of purity and holiness and so that's what you and I must do As salt, live pure and holy lives in this world. As the Westminster Confession of of Faith so beautifully describes it, we are to adorn the profession of the gospel. Don't you love it? Adorn the profession of the gospel. That doesn't mean that you and I make the gospel... (laughs) more beautiful than it is. We couldn't possibly do that. It means rather that our lives lived in purity and, and holiness with deeds of grace and mercy and compassion and justice. They show just how beautiful the gospel is when we faithfully live it out. That's what it means to be salt. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, The glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. 
That's adorning the gospel. It's what it means to be salt. It's what you must be. You and I must be. Don't miss Jesus' emphasis here. What stands as the first word in a sentence in Greek is the word that gets the attention. And that word in the Greek is you. You are the salt of the earth. For even more emphasis, just so we don't miss the point. Jesus adds the indefinite article, the. He doesn't say you are salt of the earth. He says you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. As if to say you, my followers, my disciples, and no one else, and no thing else, you are the salt of the earth. One and only one salt can purify the world and bring about real transformation. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ spoken and lived out by you and me, his disciples. And so, there's no passing the buck on this one. You can't look to the person beside you and say, huh, you be salt, not me. All of us must live lives that adorn the gospel. History's proven that the world's not going to get better and better. It's not going to get purer and purer on its own. A Harvard or an Ivy League education is not going to make this world a better place. No amount of optimism is going to make it a better place. Saying humans are getting better and better doesn't mean that they are. So our hope for a better world, for a purer world, it's a false hope. If it's built on anything but the gospel of Jesus Christ and faith in and absolute obedience to him. And if we don't believe that, if you and I, as believers in Christ, don't believe that, what hope is there? Don't be worn down by our culture. Don't allow the constant drip of the humanist message erode your faith. All will not be well. Nothing will be well apart from Jesus. All will not be well. Nothing will be well apart from Jesus. And he has put you and me in this world to prove that point. He's called us to be salt. And so our thinking must be this. I am a Christian. Therefore, I am salt. This is who I must be. I must salt the earth. Jesus says here, but, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. I don't think that Jesus is referring to a chemical reaction here. That we cease to be salt. I think he's simply calling you and me to self-examination. How salty am I? How is my life, the holiness of it, the purity of it, playing a purifying role in this world. If you and I aren't doing this, if you and I aren't adorning the gospel, then what are you doing? What am I doing? Jesus gives you hope. And through you and your saltiness, he gives hope to the world. Let's hope 
in that hope. Can you? Hope in that hope? Let's hope that we can make a difference in this world for Jesus' sake. Do you have that hope? Let's adorn our lives, all of us. Let's adorn the gospel with purity and holiness. Let's be salt so that the church, even this church, will go on and on and on as the kingdom of God keeps advancing and advancing while we wait for His glorious appearing. Let's pray. Father, make us salt, we pray. Help us embrace our identity without fear, knowing, Lord, that you empower us to be the people that you identify us to be. Lord, it's a scary thing to face our culture with these truths. More and more so here in the West every day that we live. More and more so as the world around us believes that the separation from God is the best thing. Lord, they try to put you in a corner and hope no one notices. Father, I pray that you will give us boldness to believe that there is no hope apart from you. And so make us faithful, Lord, to be salt in this world. Help us to live lives of holiness and purity so that the way we live, Lord, does not bring shame to the gospel, but instead that the way we live adorns the gospel because you are alive in us and you are the hope. You are the only hope of the world. Convince us of that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.